Several thousand people took to the streets of Berlin on Thursday. They were protesting a decision by a constitutional court to lift a rental price cap that had previously been in place. The cap, which had come into place in February last year, froze prices for five years at June 2019 levels. Next, as per our Friday form on the late edition, we'll be checking in with our left field New York correspondent, Henry Reese Sheridan. Today, his missive tackles the environment with one beady eye on New York City's mayoral elections too. Can't wait. And finally, we'll be looking at the news agency Reuters' decision to introduce a paywall for its online news stories. Is this the future of journalism? I somehow doubt it. We'll be discussing these topics and plenty more besides on the late edition here on Monocle 24. Hello and an exceedingly warm welcome to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It's Friday the 16th of April and I'm Josh Fennett here at Midori House in London. And I'm joined today in studio by Monocle 24's finest. We have here Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Carlotta Ribello. Carlotta, plenty to get through on today's show, but I'm going to come to you first as the urbanist herself. I wonder what you, the producer of our show about cities each week, are looking forward to doing in unlockdowning London as it begins to open up. Honestly, Josh, the past week has just been a great reminder of why I love London so much. Uh, I was um, quite cautious on Monday, the grand reopening, because I just, as someone who lives in, lives in East London, it's like, it's, I knew it was going to be carnage on the streets. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, young people have been indoors for uh, more than a year. Uh, so I think my flat was one of the few that we were choosing to stay indoors on Monday. But then, you know, Tuesday we went to our local. We managed to get a table without booking, which is a great miracle. Um, on Wednesday, uh, we ended up going for drinks with some colleagues here from work. The first time we figured out we had gone from drinks for drinks together after work since 2000. 2019, uh, because, you know, January and Feb was so cold in 2020 that that didn't happen. Uh, so it was just really nice to uh, to get together. And this weekend, you know, I'm staying home tonight of my own choice, which hasn't happened in ages. And then to, tomorrow I'm going to meet some friends for a nice lunch in the sun and have a few drinks. I am very, very happy to, you know, go back up there and socialize and get a bit of life back. And it's great to see, you know, the city back in full swing. I, I mentioned this um, to, to Fernando and a few others uh, earlier today. One of the things that I completely forgot about was, you know, the amount of space that we actually don't have in pavements. And on Monday, when all these businesses that have been shut for months started to get their outdoor seating out, I was like, oh, yeah, this is how it used to look. It almost gave, make me, made me a bit nostalgic. It's like, oh, I forgot this place. I, I now only go to get a takeaway coffee. I can actually sit outside and enjoy being there for a while. So it's been great. And Fernando Gusto Pacheco, great pleasure to have you on the show. Um, I want to know what's going on in Soho, where you live, obviously a packed and busy part of London. Um, Nostalgia for the way things were or nuisance for so many people? You know what? Actually, a a journalist interviewed me in the streets of Soho saying, oh, as a resident, how do you feel about that? I feel great. Listen, I know that I live in a neighbourhood where, you know, the nightlife is so precious. I welcome, you know, it is a little bit noisy. I was not used to, on Monday, I was like, oh, that's how it really looks like. But I'm keeping actually very quiet. I'm not actually 
booking tables for now. And this weekend, you know what I very much look forward to? A little bit of shopping, actually. I'm kind of tired of shopping online, getting the wrong sizes of, of clothing. So, yeah, I'll definitely go uh, browse around uh, London. I want to go to a few design shops, have a look which kind of couches they have. I need a new couch, actually. It was yeah, lovely but... to go back to a bookshop. Uh, yes. Just, you know, during a lunch break to pop around the corner and go to Daunt Books. I hadn't done that in such a long time. And I didn't even buy anything. I just wanted to be in a bookshop and lose track of time for a bit. But I will go back and make a purchase. We should be helping independent bookshops. So we're going to head uh, from here in London, a city which is kind of rediscovering its groove and a bit of nightlife and a bit of fun, um, to Germany, uh, which is suffering a little bit more than the UK at the minute. But we're going to talk about housing. The Berlin capital saw several thousand people take to the streets yesterday. They were protesting the lifting of a rent cap that froze rents for five years for around 1.5 million apartments in the capital. One of the most debated laws in Germany, there are potentially disastrous implications for the tenants who not only face higher rents, but also the possibility of owing back payments. We're going to play a clip now that first aired on The Globalist this morning. Here's Rachel Loxton, a Berlin-based writer and deputy editor of The Local in Germany. Yeah, well, as you can imagine, lots of people are very angry. Um, Actually, last night there was a huge demonstration in a part of the city um, where people got out and said, you know, we want this rent freeze back. Uh, There were a few scuffles with police, but it was mostly peaceful. Um, And what what you have to remember that in the moment that we heard that the rent freeze law was being overturned, many people's rents went up, often by hundreds of euros. I spoke to someone whose rent was going up by six. 600 euros per month. Another person, it was 500 euros. Myself, it went up by 250 euros. And as you mentioned, the other thing is that lots of people will have to pay back the difference on the rents they've been paying while the rent freeze was in place. And this could be thousands of euros. Rachel Loxton there. Isn't it nice to hear a lovely German accent like that? As she was speaking a little earlier on Monocle 24, and I was joking, she's obviously not from Germany. Um, Fernando, uh, the idea of a rent cap uh, is a little bit alien to most of us in London, where the market does most of the decision-making about how much people pay for square footage. But what do you think of the idea of safeguarding spaces in cities where people perhaps with a lower income can live in amongst the clatter and the clamour and the fun? Listen, I think it's very important to have some sort of rent control. But then looking at the story of Berlin, I also don't find what they had was perfect. Because, first of all, it was for five years. Perhaps that's a little bit too long. I mean, it it is great if you're a young person, you want to live in a big city. You know, I do agree with that. And cities like London, New York have a lot to learn. But at the same time, I was reading that some, you know, some companies, you know, where, where, where they build new houses, they were not, they didn't want to actually invest in the city because, you know, they wouldn't get anything back. So, I mean, so then in the, at the same time, there's a shortage of housing. Uh, so, I am in favor of rent, some sort of rent control, and I think there's lots that cities can do. But perhaps the Berlin one, it was a bit tricky. Even five years to, to freeze the rents perhaps is a bit too much. But again, I'm not a Berliner, uh, uh, so I know it's quite a controversial topic among citizens. But I would, I would also be very upset if suddenly, you know, the court overturned and then my rent goes up in an incredible amount. I think they have to be very careful now. If it goes up, I think it should go kind of according to inflation, but it shouldn't go up by, you know, 20, 30 or or even 50%. Carlotta, I'm desperate to hear your opinion on this. Is this a good idea, poorly administered, a poor idea 
badly done. What do you think about this? Because it's obviously quite a controversial issue, as in Berlin, the idea of being poor and sexy was one of the things that brought so many artists to the city that made space affordable for people. But how easy is it for the government to just prescribe that? Well, and it, it goes very deep into what's, what's at the core of the identity of Berlin, isn't it? And as Fernando was talking there, I don't think this was a perfect model, but some sort of rent control needs to exist. Um, perhaps uh, making it to go, you know, hand in hand with inflation so that there's a limit uh, citywide or statewide about how much landlords can increase rent. Uh, maybe that's one way to go. Now, we need to think, consider here one important thing. Um, Germany, first of all, has a uh, history and uh, the characteristics of usually uh, doing long-term rent. Uh, you know, it's, I believe, the fourth lowest in Europe in terms of home ownership. Only 18.4% of people in Berlin actually own a property. So when you have the vast majority of the population from, you know, all classes, all uh, levels of education, all uh, types of jobs, everything, mostly renting, there needs to be some sort of control if the expectation is that you'd rent and owning is the uh, the glitch in the system. Um, so when those are that, that when that is a reality that you have in front of you, I think it's inevitable for the government to try to do something. Um, and especially in a country you know that values the state as being socially responsible for citizens from healthcare to education, this needs to come into play. Or you make access to the uh, housing market in terms of ownership easier, more part of the culture because in Berlin is not just a case of um, it's a mix of housing crisis but also cultural. There's no problem with renting all your life so that you can live in a place that you actually want rather than moving outside of the city to a suburb or far away just so you can own, which is very much the culture in this country, for example, uh, and of course in other European cities too. Portugal as well um, is like that. Um, so it's an interesting uh, combination of factors here. But now the question I have um, that obviously will become apparent in the next few weeks is this demand now for tenants to pay rent back Shouldn't it be the state's or the city's responsibility since the citizens were not the one making the decision that they wouldn't be paying the rent? How can you justify, particularly after a year and a half of a pandemic, to be like, you now owe by next month 5,000 euros that we told you you didn't have to pay, but oops, we made a mistake, so now you do. You put people in a really tricky uh, position and risk exactly what you were just mentioning of, you know, uh, getting the people that are at the core of the identity of Berlin, you know, the artists, uh, you know, the irreverent characters, um, people that go to Berlin just for a few months and maybe, you know, put on an art show or just try to write the book that they will never write. Uh, you know, that's such a big part of uh, the allure of Berlin and going there for a few months and trying to make it work out. I mean, just look at the amazing music that happened from artists that went there just for a weekend trip and then uh, they stay there for years, from Iggy Pop to David Bowie, you know, the, and they redefine music for generations. And we still look at back at their Berlin years as some of the best work that they did. So we cannot lose that identity. Berlin is in the middle of an identity crisis of trying to figure out uh, what type of city it is going to be in the future. If you add this on top, I, I'm really scared. I don't want Berlin to change. It's a great city um, and people should be able to stay uh, there and continue with, you know, this 
experimentation in urban life. Um, so I hope that in the next few weeks, those answers uh, come to light that, you know, the city um, is held accountable in certain in some way. And if, yeah, if private landlords are putting the pressure, it shouldn't be on the tenants because they didn't make the decision in the first place. Fernando, you were, you were kind of bristling there as if you had something to add. No problem if you don't. But I, I actually do. But, you know, it's interesting because I agree with Carlotta that Berlin shouldn't change its identity. But at the same time, I think they need to update a little bit their slogans, in my opinion. For mm. example, poor but sexy. I don't think it's going to work in 2021. Perhaps solid and sexy. I mean, <laughs> I, I, don't, I didn't have too much time to prepare a new slogan. Drop the poor for now. That's, that's my tip for Berlin. Because, you know, they're also a capital. And I do think, you know, you know, the city was booming. I mean, the rent control was implemented because the rents were going up. So it wasn't, you know, that place that, you know, your poor artist living. I'm sure that was the case a few years ago. But, it, you know, it's okay. The city's becoming richer. You know, you should have some certain controls here and there. But, you know, I think there's no problem in, in, in stopping poor as well. Well, and of course, that that discourse has moved along, hasn't it? You know, the, the idea of 40, 50 years ago of artistic freedom came from, you know, you uh in the worst years of your life. So you move to a city that's cheaper than where you're from and try to make it there. And now we know that a lot of artists um, that are just now starting their careers have the means to move to another city, uh, rent somewhere, uh, invest in their art more than the, if they were in this place of origin. So I, I do agree with you on that one, but it's it's a sort of um, reputation that at the same time still attracts a lot of people. The same way, you know, if you're a writer, you imagine yourself, you know, smoking a cigarette, drinking a coffee outside a Parisian uh, cafe, just writing away your manuscript on a, nap- on a napkin, you know. <laughs> There's just some reputation that um, it still is creates this image in people's minds when, you know, in reality, you'd be tapping away at your, in your MacBook and you didn't have to write in a napkin after all. And, of course, you can search out our nuanced, interesting and exciting coverage of cities across the Monocle 24 schedule and on The Urbanist, produced by our very own Carlotta Ribello, every single week. What time is it on, Carlotta? 8pm, 2000 London time, or midday, if you are joining from Los Angeles every Thursday. Sounded like one of the promos we play on the radio. I love that. Very good. Very good to get that done in person. We're going to zip away from Germany now and across the Atlantic to check in with our, it says here, intrepid correspondent, Henry Rees Sheridan. Uh, I think if I'd have time to look at the script, I might have changed the adjective. But nonetheless, here he is talking about something or other. Indian Point is a nuclear power plant located 25 miles north of New York City. It opened in 1962, and at the end of this month, it will shut down. The closure of Indian Point has been a long-standing goal of New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. He doesn't like the presence of a nuclear power plant so close to a major metropolitan area. But over the course of Cuomo's tenure, environmental issues have steadily risen up the political agenda. And now, when Cuomo is finally achieving the goal of shutting down the plant, he's finding it in awkward tension with another one of his targets reducing the city's carbon emissions. Like all nuclear power plants, Indian Point poses environmental risks. There's a potential for accidents. In 2015, 
a fire knocked out one of Indian Point's generators and led to the contamination of the Hudson River with oil and fire-retardant foam. In addition to accidents, there's also the environmental damage caused by the plant's normal operation. Each year, millions of fish suffer an undignified death. They're sucked into the plant, along with the billions of gallons of river water it uses to cool its two reactors. But nuclear power plants also offer significant environmental advantages over those powered by fossil fuels. Nuclear facilities produce next to no greenhouse gas emissions. The closure of Indian Point means New York is going to have to rely much more on gas-burning power plants, which is going to increase the state's carbon emissions. For this reason, many environmental activists say Indian Point should be kept open. The question of power generation is just one major environmental challenge New York City faces. Rising sea levels pose an existential threat to the low-lying coastal city. The New York City Economic Development Corporation, an official body, estimates 37% of buildings in Lower Manhattan will be at risk from storm surges by 2050. To defend itself from the sea, New York is going to have to build some kind of physical defence. Plans along these lines include a massive storm surge barrier across the mouth of Lower New York Bay and smaller projects like a five-mile seawall protecting the east shore of Staten Island. Getting these projects off the ground is immensely difficult. It can be next to impossible to raise the funds for them with so many competing priorities that feel more pressing and so many conflicting interests that can erode the political will required to push them through. However, the pandemic, its own type of natural disaster, might now have generated a rare opportunity for New York politicians to really build big. President Biden's $2 trillion American infrastructure plan earmarks $50 billion to spend on so-called resilient infrastructure to protect against extreme weather events. New York's leaders need to focus on securing enough of this money to kickstart the construction of the sorely needed storm defences. A lot depends on who the next mayor will be. Their skill at coordinating different interests and agencies might make all the difference. Unfortunately, large-scale resilient infrastructure doesn't seem to be high up on the agendas of the two frontrunners for mayor. The environment policy section of Andrew Yang's website mentions rising sea levels in its introduction, but it doesn't go on to outline any infrastructure projects that directly address that challenge. One of the projects Yang advocates for is painting the city's roofs brighter colours to lower their temperature. It's a low-cost, feel-good plan, but it's not going to stop the next Hurricane Sandy. Eric Adams, who is second to Yang in most polls, doesn't even have an environment policy section on his website. It would be a great shame to miss this once-in-a-generation opportunity. New York can be protective now, or reactive after enough homes and lives are lost to extreme weather that erecting defences has to become a political priority. On a somewhat smaller scale, the environmental issue that most troubles me day to day is unfortunately unlikely to become a political priority anytime soon. It's incredibly difficult to find grass in New York City. 
I didn't realise I had such an attachment to grass until I moved here. I'd find myself conducting desperate grass surveys using Google Maps. I'd find a patch marked green on the map and go there to find a park entirely covered in tarmac. Over the pandemic, there has been a development that's added insult to injury. The proliferation of outdoor dining areas in the city has led to a surge in astroturf. Many dining establishments have attempted to create a bucolic atmosphere using plastic grass. I find this cruel and unusual. It brings into bitter relief the lack of natural grass in the city, and it's almost impossible to clean. I can't stop thinking about what's lurking between the plastic blades. Henry Reese Sheridan in New York there, and we're going to zip on to our final topic of the day, and we're going to uh, talk about journalism, if you can believe that. Reuters has announced that it will start to charge for its online news content, although crucially it hasn't given a precise date for doing so yet. The global news organisation plans to start charging a monthly fee, following in the footsteps of other media outlets who have gone the paywall route. Reuters says it currently has 41 million unique users on its website each month. Carlotta, um, we've seen some quite big successes from some brands that have moved to this paywall model. I'm thinking of the Wall Street Journal, the Telegraph here in the UK, at the New York Times for a lot of its content. Um, and it strikes a very funny balance with me. I think good journalism about what's going on in the world should really reach as many people as possible. But when it comes to funding those journalists to do the trips, to be safe, to be insured, to have a good editor, to have an office to come back to... The problem of funding it is a, is, a, is a really thorny one. Do you think inevitably some of the best journalism is going to need to, for now at least, until the funding model's fixed, hide behind a paywall? Well, I really hope not. And I think uh, here with Reuters is an interesting case, isn't it? Because you have Reuters and then you have the Thomson Reuters Foundation where that's, I would be shocked if that goes behind a paywall because that is the funded work of a foundation to report stories uh, that are unrepresented from voices to countries to issues that are not in mainstream media. So I think that part of Reuters will still be uh, out of a paywall and available and uh, will fulfill its mission. The issue that I have with this, and I'm not necessarily against paywalls, I do think in these examples you mentioned, for example, Bloomberg, it worked quite well. But with Reuters... It is, at the end of the day, a newswire. You know, it's not like you buy the Reuters newspaper or the Reuters magazine. It is a newswire service. And the whole philosophy and model behind newswires is that it's that's where the other media go and get their stories or their ideas, particularly in local journalism. Um, that's where you go to be able to, you know, have a, a new a world page that might just be, you know, half a page in your daily uh, local newspaper, but they are reliant on newswires. So I'm a bit um, fearful that having now this idea of Rogers moving behind a paywall, that a lot of places will lose access to that because not not every newsroom can buy the subscription, and I know, you know, they say it's thirty-five dollars per month. I think uh, from now on, that's for an individual, for an organisation, and to be able to run the stories, it will be a different, um, a different subscription, a bit higher because you're using their content. So, uh, not every single newsroom will be able to take that cost in. You know, it might not sound like a lot, but if this was a service you got for free, it might be easier to just drop two pages from print and you just actually, um, you know, save more money. But I feel like a lot of stories won't 
get told. And um, for me, it just goes yeah deeper into this conversation and the whole ethos behind a newswire and what service it should provide. If suddenly um, the Associated Press or PA as well or the AFP went all behind a paywall, it, it just would be almost impossible to do the job we do because not every newsroom have people everywhere. We rely on each other to be like, oh, you know what? I I saw the piece this Reuters journalist in X location did where they're the only media there. So it will be interesting to see what happens um, after this and if other newsrooms will follow suit. So, Fernando, very interesting uh, talking about payment models, something you know well as the host of The Stack most weeks. Monocle24 is, of course, uh, a free service for many people. If they did want to start a GoFundMe page to get Fernando's new sofa, which he mentioned at the top of the show, (laughs) I'm certain that would be uh, greatly appreciated. But um, on the issue of journalism and how we fund it, where do you stand? Because a lot of the very interesting businesses that you cover are in print, are in small runs of print. They're doing something interesting for a small audience and that audience has to pay for it. Do you think that, you know, public service comes into it and we should be giving some things away for free, If say if it's about coronavirus or something that immediately affects people? I mean, it's funny that you mentioned coronavirus. I think quite a lot of the big dailies, they actually, uh, you know, even uh, my favourite Brazilian paper, Folha de São Paulo, all the stories COVID-related, like where you need to ha- have your vaccine, they were, you know, for free, even though the newspaper is under a paywall. But I have to say, I am a big believer in paywalls because it's a funding method that it worked. You know, I think, for example, the Wall Street Journal started, I believe, 1996. They were one of the first. I mean, so many others copied. I mean, it's not just a, not just copying. I mean, because, you know, it's proper, you know, where the money is coming from. Today is very hard to just depend on advertisement, you know. So, you know, people, they really need to think about that. And, you know, I subscribe to so many kind of different dailies because, you know, it's nice to pay journalism for good research as well. But then I do want to say that everything should be under paywall. You know, there are services, uh, you know, like the BBC or, or or even as Carlotta was saying, it's interesting because Reuters, I forgot, it, it, is, it is a newswire. So it's a different kind of thing than just being kind of a daily. Uh, but yeah, people need to understand that they also have to pay for journalism. You know, it's, uh, uh, I, I just find that I, I even feel a little bit annoyed when people say, oh, I have to pay five pounds for a magazine. And then, you know, they they buy a pint of beer for, you know, at the pub for the same price. So I think it's something that should be valued and we should never forget that. And finally, we are understanding that not only not we're not or not only in print media, but look at uh, TV streaming. Everyone has they, they have they, they want their uh, share of the pie. Of course they want, because otherwise, how are we going to fund the artists or journalists or vice versa? So we all agree that uh, some bits of journalism are certainly worth paying for, and then that's a sustainable model for some people. But I'm going to give you each one option. It can be a subscription to a website, an app. It could be a physical printed newspaper or magazine. You get one each, and you've got to buy it yourself. Or maybe I'll give you the money. For it. I'll give you the money. Fernando, what are you picking? The print one, of course. No, but which one? Oh, which Is it for your Sao Paulo? Is well, it... you know what, Josh? Okay, I'm going to dream here, okay? I want a Folha de São Paulo on my doorstep every single day coming from Brazil, you know, because that's something that I can't have it. I'm afraid uh, it's been a tough time on the coffers and I cannot afford the yearly subscription. You get one day. You promise, you, you promise, Josh. I'll give you the Sunday one. And Carlotta, for you? Well, I will save you some of your spare change, Josh, and Perfect. say people should just tune into Monocle 24, oh, which is a great free service uh, that provides you with the top news of the day, some light entertainment as well, and, you know, all the great conversations. That would be my pick.
And I should say with my monocle hat on, think of it as a fine and fetching bicorn, uh, that you can subscribe to Monocle magazine and support the fine work that we do. But sadly, that's all the time we have for today's late edition. A big thank you to Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Carlotta Ribello, our studio manager, Louis Allan, looking at me vacantly through a, a piece of glass, not certain what he's been up to. Uh, we're all at Midori House in London. And a big thanks, as always, to our producer, Ed Stocker from Milan. The late edition returns at the same time on Monday. But thank you very much for listening and have a great weekend. Thank you.